Well, uh, good morning, Seaside family. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jonathan and Becky, for leading us in a time of worship. My name is Junior Jamrianvid. I'm a childhood friend of Dominic. Uh, I'm an elder at Grace EV Free La Mirada. And I was asked to uh, bring the word today, and I just love the privilege of being able to do that. It's always a pleasure to come and visit, to see familiar faces and new faces. It's always great to see Terry and Amy, Nick and Dez, uh, you know, even Justin up there run, running things in the back. It's great to see you guys. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. Welcome. You know, uh, there are common human experiences that we go through that remind us that, yes, we are indeed human. And regardless of your background or where you come from, there's something universal and sweepingly true about us. Uh, so, for example, take traffic. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, you know, I can't wait to get on that gridlock and be trapped in this metal box on wheels and breathe in carbon monoxide an hour uh, to work. No, nobody says that in the morning, right? I think we could all get on board with hating traffic. Another example would be puppies. You know, you don't even have to like dogs, but puppies are universally adored. Conversely, think about cockroaches, for instance. Now, when you see one crawling on the wall or crawling on the floor, you don't think, oh, look, how cute. No, it's usually met with screaming and yelling and a sudden urge to tense up to make sure you find something in order to kill it with. And don't ever let a roach get away, right? Because then you're thinking about it all night. Like, oh, man, it's going to get me at night. Am I going to open a cupboard and it's going to be staring back at me with those ugly antennae? Oh, just gross. Don't let one get away. You know, other human experiences could be, you ever walk into a room and forget why you walked in there? Have you ever looked at your watch and looked away and still not know what time it is? You know, so these human, common human experiences and thoughts show that there's something universally true about us. There's, it reminds us that, yes, we're in this together. We're doing life together. In our passage this morning, the Bible addresses something else universal in the human condition, something very serious, and that is our universal destitution, meaning that we are deeply spiritually impoverished and that we can never do anything to save ourselves and we're in need of a Savior and no amount of goodness or effort can make us acceptable or pleasing to God, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And it's an unpopular view because we want to be perceived as a society of self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy. But with this dire news of universal destitution for all mankind, there is hope. And there is good news because there's also a universal solution. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when faced with the person and message of Christ, we must make a decision. Either reject him or accept him. So in the Luke's gospel, we're going to see the mission of Christ and the messianic mission to show the people, including the covenant people of God, their universal destitution, and that he is the ultimate solution for all humanity and all peoples. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. And our verses today will be verses 14 through 30. That's our primary passage. And as 
your heading there. Let me summarize the text before we read. So up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, things are going rather well. We have prophecy being fulfilled, the virgin birth, John the Baptist, and even Zechariah prophesying, breaking 400 years of silence, ushering a new era and a new work that God is doing, Jesus being baptized, the Spirit descending upon him, being led into the wilderness and to emerge victorious against Satan's temptations. He goes on to preach in different synagogues, and all were glorifying him. But then things take an interesting turn. So after the temptation account, Luke now draws attention to Jesus returning to Galilee, starting his Galilean ministry. And it was about a year after the temptation account, which the Gospel of John fills in that gap. But here, Luke focuses on his return to Nazareth, where he grew up as a child. And it was his custom, he attended the synagogue regularly, like a religious, faithful Jew. He takes the scroll of Isaiah, he reads it hands it back to the attendant, start, sits down, and starts teaching. And they started being marveled at his words. But then the crowd started doubting him as he continues to teach, asking him to prove himself by performing miracles. Jesus doesn't perform miracles, but instead uses Old Testament examples of the prophet Elijah and Elisha. The crowd reacts with hostility in the Old Testament accounts and even tried to kill him but he escapes. So this passage portrays the messianic mission and God's plan for mankind. It's a microcosm of what Jesus will be facing throughout his ministry, that he will present himself as the Messiah, give the message, but ultimately be rejected by his people. And there are three points in this passage I want us to see, three points. Number one is universal destitution, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Two, universal solution. Jesus is the Messiah and is the only way to salvation. And three, ultimate decision. Either we reject or accept the person of Christ and his message. So again, it's destitution, solution, and decision. So let's read the text starting in verse 14, Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, a great famine came over all the land and Elijah 
was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Oh, what an amazing account. So starting in verse 14, it begins much like the beginning of chapter 4, where the Spirit leads Jesus in the wilderness. And now, as he enters Galilee in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit's role here in the section of Luke is to guide Jesus, to anoint Jesus specifically for preaching and teaching. The Spirit alone is mentioned in this chapter three times in verse 1, 14, and 18. And in the power of the Spirit, he taught in their synagogues. Verse 15. So an essential aspect of Jesus' ministry is preaching and teaching. So today, I fear that people tend to be more impressed with acts of compassion and mercy ministry instead of preaching and teaching. And while we should have mercy ministries and compassion ministries, it should never be without proclaiming the gospel. See, we don't want to make God an unspoken assumption. We're not merely humanitarians promoting human welfare. No, we're Christians who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and words need to be met with actions and our actions need to be explicitly clear that it's Jesus that drives us towards the welfare of others. It's the love of Christ that motivates us. It's our desire to see people come to know Christ that propels us to good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And good words and deeds and even miracles could be misunderstood, and even when properly understood, may not invoke saving faith. So teaching with words offers greater precision and clarity, for Jesus is both the Word of God, and he declares the Word of God. You know, back at uh, my church, Grace E.V. Free La Mirada, we have a food bank ministry Friday evenings, and we present the gospel every time, because we don't want to make the Lord an unspoken assumption. We want him front and center. And when we meet the physical needs of people, we must use it as an opportunity to meet their spiritual needs, for that is far more important. So preaching and teaching the gospel was at the core of Christ's ministry, and it needs to be at the core of ours. In verse 16, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and it was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, you know, I don't think it's the main point of this passage, but I do think it's worth mentioning that it was his custom to attend the synagogue. So the synagogue parallels very much of what you think of church service today. There was a time of singing and praising the Lord. There was time reading from the scriptures, and a time of preaching the word from the scriptures. Jesus here living out and showing the importance of gathering for corporate worship. And it was his custom to read from the scriptures. Jesus found the text, this specific text in Isaiah, and he reads, which comes to our first point, universal destitution. 
And he says in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So here in verse 18 and 19, Jesus gives this reading in Isaiah, Isaiah 61, the spirit is upon me. It's a messianic claim that lays out the messianic mission. So what is the messianic mission? Well, there's a lot of things here. It's listed. There are five things. Let's read it again. The messianic mission is to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus makes this messianic claim that the Spirit is upon him. And much like how the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, the Spirit leading him into the wilderness to be tempted, now in the power of the Spirit comes back to Galilee to preach. And this term anointed literally is what the Messiah is called. The Messiah is called the anointed one. So the Jewish people knew exactly that this text in Isaiah was messianic in nature. So the crowd believing that they were the poor ones, that they were the captives, and they were the oppressed, and felt and believed that the Messiah was going to set them free and change the political landscape. In one sense, they're absolutely right. The Jewish people were held captive. They were in a land no longer their own. They were only occupants, and the Romans were oppressing them. They were correct. However, the audience here is not described in purely social or political terms. No, the passage's primary point is spiritual and a social transformation into a new community. That, of course, does not mean we don't take care of the poor or help the oppressed. Of course we do. Jesus does that himself in his earthly life and ministry, but that was in his primary concern. His primary concern, like this passage, was spiritual transformation which then leads to physical manifestations of extending grace, mercy, compassion, and generosity to others. And this key word poor here in Luke, we could gain insight into the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.3, where Matthew says poor in spirit. It's this Greek word, pateos, which means beggar. Now, a beggar could only obtain a living while through begging, so it's not a person of low economic status, a poor person, yet can help himself through labor. It's not that at all. It's being completely dependent on another for survival. And Luke uses this term throughout his gospel several times, and he uses it to describe the rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16. The poor man named Lazarus who needed to beg and long for the crumbs off the table because he could not help himself. And that's a picture of our spiritual condition. There's nothing that we could do for ourselves to save ourselves. We're helpless. And this is universal for all mankind, regardless of our economic status. And Isaiah says that our righteousness are like filthy rags to the Lord. But understand that anyone, rich or poor, can come to faith in Christ. See, 4.18 here emerges more as a generalization it's not an exclusive reference based solely on social class. No, it's a description that generally applies to the poor because it's the poor that tend to respond best 
to Christ more directly and honestly because they are more dependent and feel their need and know their frailty. Outsiders relate to Jesus' message best. So wealth and power can be a barrier to receiving the gospel because of a person's feeling of autonomy and self-sufficiency. But there are plenty of wealthy people in the Bible who came to faith. If you think of the patriarch Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all wealthy. Then even after Joseph, who was born in a wealthy family, lost everything and then became wealthy again. You look, even New Testament examples of Joseph, of Arimathea, Priscilla, and Aquila. And even later in our passage today, Jesus uses two examples of people coming to faith. One was a poor widow in Zarephath, another a rich Syrian general in Naaman. So it doesn't matter what your economic status is, our spiritual status are all the same. So a strictly material and political interpretation of these verses often ignore the crucial spiritual element. And later Jesus even says in 623 that rewards are in heaven for those who suffer. It's not the language of violent revolution, but of individual transformation within a new social perspective. Again, the church is certainly called to minister to the poor and the needy and to be sensitive to their plight and poverty. And a call to the church is to meet one another's needs and to love our neighbors in real and tangible ways and to be most visible in the church far above any other human institution. And this idea of captive, captive. In the Old Testament, the reference to captives often meant the exile. And it often has spiritual overtones because Jesus wasn't really talking about freeing literal captives. No, literal captives, he, he didn't even set free John the Baptist. So this idea of images that include releasing captivity, recovering sight to the blind, and liberating the oppressed, it's talking about spiritual sin spiritual captivity, blindness, and oppression. Isaiah says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. Earlier in the book of Luke, speaking of John the Baptist, the forerunner, he is supposed to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising of the sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Luke 1.77 Luke 1, in Acts 5.31, Luke also continues, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Other passages, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might Free those through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. So we, before Christ, we were under the power and authority and held captive by Satan 
and the world, and we were oppressed by them. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of the air, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. The Bible also talks about the non-believer being veiled to the gospel, being blinded from the gospel. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of, unbel- of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4. So these passages are talking about spiritual bondage, blindness, and captivity. So the Messiah's mission is to break that, those chains of bondage to give sight so people could see Christ, to set them free from captivity. It is salvific in nature. So Jesus comes to the spiritually bankrupt to make them spiritually rich through faith in him. So Jesus, so those without Jesus, those without Christ are the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. It's not a political manifesto, not an earthly salvation. And people looking for earthly salvation were frustrated because Jesus did not deliver that. He didn't overthrow the Romans. He didn't promote revolution. He didn't establish an earthly kingdom. No, he came to give something far greater and that will last, something that will last forever. So whether it was the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and now the Romans, it didn't matter who the oppressor was. He came to set free his people, the reason why they were oppressed to begin with, and that was covenant unfaithfulness. It's important to note here, as Jesus was reading the scroll of Isaiah, he stops at a comma, and he omits the day of vengeance because that day has not arrived yet. And that gives us hope because judgment has yet to be issued, which leads to my next point. Point number two, universal solution, the Messiah, fulfillment. And here in verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's take a moment to trace some of the Old Testament messianic promises that were made. I want us to try to feel the weight of what Jesus was saying. So pertaining to the Messiah, he'll be born of a woman, born of a virgin, called to crush the head of the serpent to conquer evil for all time. He will be called Emmanuel because he will be with us. And he's a direct line from the patriarch of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'll be of the lineage of the Jewish people from the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, a throne that will be anointed and eternal, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God, the Alpha and the Omega, our Redeemer King. And the greatness of his government will be peace there will be no end. And he will reign on the Davidic Davidic throne and establish and uphold justice and righteousness forevermore. And the Lord Almighty, Yahweh, El Shaddai, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, he will accomplish this. He will bring it to pass. And this is in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
So when Jesus applies this passage to himself, he is saying here in the present time, the message of comfort and hope Isaiah brought to the nations, he is now doing the same and saying, fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus is saying, the Messiah is here and I am he. I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the great I am before Abraham was I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by me. Hope can now become a reality today through placing your faith in him. And this is offered to all people everywhere. The fulfillment of Christ in the entire Old Testament was pointing to him in the living word of God, the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He is our hope and our solution. And here, even at the end of the book of Luke, in chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, he says this to his disciples. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that in all things which are written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Listen to verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He set them free. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and raise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So when we Christians today who have the whole counsel of God, the full revelation of the work of God, know that Christ has come and he accomplished his mission, it is finished. And here in verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So what's going on in this verse here? It seems to be that they were marveling one minute and then started questioning him the next. It was a quick turnaround. How can this neighbor of ours be the fulfillment of the Messiah? How can this common man's son make such claims? And this leads to my final point. Number three, ultimate decision. So when faced with the person and message of Christ, we too must come to that decision. Whether we reject him or accept him, and the son of Joseph here is a human title rather than a Christological one like son of God. Is he merely a common man's son or is truly the son of God? I think it's good to maybe read the parallel passages in the other Gospels to give us a fuller picture of what's going on. Matthew 13, you could just listen. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in hometown, in his own household. And he did not 
do many miracles because of their unbelief. Here in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6 says, Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. And he could do no miracle except that he laid hands, his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. So here, familiarity breeds contempt. And Jesus, growing up in Nazareth, clearly the people remembered him. They remembered his family, knew his relatives. His relatives were among them. How can this guy be the Messiah? I think it's safe to infer that for much of Jesus' life, he didn't do anything extraordinary that would indicate that he was going to be something great, let alone the Messiah. No, he lived a fairly peaceful and quiet life. He attended synagogue every week. He had a job that he went to and attended to his daily responsibilities. And I hope you find great comfort in that because we don't have to be some big-time celebrity, evangelical or otherwise, to really feel like we're making an impact for the kingdom of God. No, it's just daily faithfulness. So Jesus senses the hostility growing, and before it escalates too quickly, he says in verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So Jesus, anticipating what the crowd was thinking, so this proverb, physician, heal yourself, essentially says, prove yourself, Jesus. Perform these miracles. Prove yourself. Jesus doesn't give in on the man. He doesn't perform these miracles. But instead, he uses Old Testament examples of the prophet Elijah and Elisha, showing that faith must come first. Then you will see the miracle. Then you will see the work of God. See, we don't dictate the terms of our relationship with the Lord. We don't dictate to Jesus our terms. No, he is Lord. And here in verse 25, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, and there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So interestingly, instead of performing miracles, Jesus brings up a low point in Israel's history. During the time of Ahab, if you want to read the direct account, it's 1 Kings chapter 17, which refers to a specific famine and judgment for covenant unfaithfulness. And unfaithfulness brought Israel under judgment. So then God's provision and prophetic sign was absent because a lack of faith alienates God. 
As it did in the past, now they're endangering of doing the same here in the present because without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder for those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6. So what's going on in these accounts? Luke doesn't offer a commentary on it, but let's quickly summarize these accounts. So Elijah's account. So it was this time of Ahab. It was a time of war. And many men were dying. That's why you had several widows. They were off to war and being, getting killed. But instead of tending to the Israelite widows, God tells Elijah to go to Snidon, outside of Israel, specifically to Zarephath. And once he arrives at the city gates, she was there collecting sticks to prepare her last meal. It was just her and her son. She knew she was going to die. They had no food left, and she was just preparing their last meal. In short, Elijah says, hey, make me that last meal instead. She obeys in faith, and as she goes and reaches for flour and oil, the, their respective containers would constantly fill miraculously, that they would have enough for days and eat their fill. It's the equivalent, Old Testament equivalent, of multiplying fish and bread. The Elisha account, if you want to read the direct account, 2 Kings 5. So Naaman was a commander of a general in the Caesarean army, and, and he was a leper. And during this time, they were actually at war against Israel. And he would go on these raiding, uh, ra raiding trips and plunder cities in Israel. And one night, he actually kidnapped a girl from Israel. And it's that very girl that suggested to him, hey, you know that leprosy that you have? You probably ought to see a Elisha for that. He could heal you. Upon hearing the news of a potential remedy for his leprosy, his king writes a letter and he brings in all this bounty and clothes and goes to the king of Israel, probably, hey, all the stuff I stole from you, I'll gladly give it back. If you have your prophet heal me. The king of Israel rips his clothes and says, what kind of what kind of request is this? I can't do this. Am I, am I God that I could resurrect people? This is an unreasonable request. You're just here to make trouble. You know, I love this next part where Elisha, he hears the news and he starts wondering, like, why is the king tearing his clothes? Why is he acting all dramatic? Why doesn't everybody just relax for a minute, okay? Just relax. Hey, you know what? Send him to me. I got this. Naaman goes to Elisha and says, okay, dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman gets upset. He's like, what, that dirty river, man? We have better rivers in Damascus. I'm not doing that. That's silly. And, but at the bequest of his soldiers, he's like, hey, you know, we made the trip down here. Like, what do we really got to lose? Why don't you give it a try anyway? So he gets convinced. He dips himself in the Jordan River just as Elisha instructed and he's miraculously healed. And he goes back to Elisha and he says this, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. 2 Kings 5.15. Leprosy is a type of sin. And like Laman, Naaman, who acted in faith, was cleansed. It's analogous to forgiveness. So let's analyze these stories. What's going on here? God is working outside of Israel. And in both cases, in Zarephath and Naaman, faith preceded the miracle. And Naaman gave of her last meal in faith, and she lacked nothing. Naaman, although initially was resistant, once he acted in faith, obeying the instructions of Elisha, dips himself in the Jordan River, and he 
was cleansed. So then we too must show an act of faith first. Then we experience the miracle. Then we see the work of God. The miracle of seeing our lives transformed into the image of Christ. The miracle of seeing others transformed into the image of Christ. The miracle of all the past hurts and pain and bitterness and letting it all go and being healed. The miracle of reconciled relationships and marriages restored. The miracle of dying of cancer and yet having profound peace and hope. The miracle of taking an abused child and turning him into a loving father and caring husband. The miracle of racial unity, love, and harmony. See, the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles was not an afterthought. No, the Jews rejecting Jesus, much like how covenant infidelity drove Elisha and Elijah to the Gentiles, now it drives Jesus to the Gentiles. So this idea of accepting other people groups, accepting people outside the covenant people of God was already in operation in the days of Elijah. So therefore, remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh, remember at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. We are family. So then the crowd, or excuse me, Israel rejects, rejecting the prophet. Now in the present, the Jewish people must make a decision again on God's new messenger, Jesus. And as Elijah ministered outside the nation, it's a prophetic example that teaches that although his own homeland will reject him, others will respond and see the work of God. Verse 28, and when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Again, the Jewish people here thought they were the oppressed ones and that the Messiah was going to liberate them, not go to some outside group, a different people group. So they took offense at this, labeled Jesus a false prophet and tried to kill him, but Jesus escapes. Now, I'm not sure... What's going on here in terms of how he escaped, whether it was some divine power or supernatural ability or Jesus simply had ninja-like quickness? Regardless, it was not his time to die yet. And he will lay down his life in his time. And this brings up, I want to bring out two points here in this passage. One, Jesus didn't care about being nice. He didn't care about being well-liked by everyone. He cared about the truth. And I said earlier, things were going great in the book of Luke. 
his ministry expanding. He was getting great PR from everybody. Then he goes back to his hometown, not as a hometown hero, but to intentionally offend the people he grew up with. Now, that doesn't mean that we're unnecessarily harsh or intentionally offensive. No, but we speak the truth, and people will be offended regardless because they are in darkness. And often today, I fear that Christians could use that being well-liked as a barometer in how well we're doing, that we're not offending people. But here, even in Luke 6, 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. And Jesus wasn't afraid to speak the truth. And people spread lies about him. They slandered him. They tried to trap him at every turn and even tried to kill him, his own hometown. But that didn't stop him from boldly proclaiming the message and fulfilling his mission. Another thing I want to bring out in this text, let's back up a little. We have the temptation account in Luke. The parallel account in Matthew chapter 4 has the temptations in this order. Turn the bread into stone, throw yourself down and have the angels catch you. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you bow to me. In Luke's temptation account, he also has turning the bread into, uh, or turning stone into bread as the first temptation, but he flips the last two. So now the second temptation was offering the kingdoms of the world if you bowed to Satan, and to throw himself down and have the angels catch you, ending that account. Well, what's going on? Why would Luke do that? Well, in Luke 4.9, you see Satan saying, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And at the end of our passage, in verse, at the end of verse 29, brought him to the brow of the, the, the hill in which the town was built so that they could throw him down cliff. So we have two units that end in the same fashion, pointing to a commonality. And what's that commonality and similarity? Well, at its core, both Satan and the crowd essentially says, Jesus, prove yourself. If you are the Son of God, do this. And do it on our terms. This is how I want you to do it. Now, I don't know what's going on in everybody's life here. Is there a part of our life that essentially says the same thing, that says, hey, Jesus, you need to prove yourself to me. This is how you do it. Man, if you bless me in this way, I'll really be flourishing. Or if I only had whatever it is you fill in the blank, then I would be really, really doing well. And at its core, it's saying, Jesus, prove yourself. Prove yourself. And it's has the heart of no different than Satan and this crowd that tried to kill Jesus. So in summary, the nature of Jesus' ministry, Jesus, the spirit-anointed prophet, announces a new era and brings to pass this salvation by the anointed Messiah in Isaiah 61. He's to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and bring salvation to the destitute. His message will be taken to the Jew first, then the Gentiles, and he will experience conflict throughout his ministry, but he will emerge victorious. Implications, and I'll go over this quickly. Implications. First, for the non-believer, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you are now faced with the decision, his person and his message. And you must 
make that decision. He didn't give neutrality an option. These are, it's a binary choice to either accept him or reject him. Is he the, merely the son of Joseph or is he truly the son of God? For believers, there are four points I want to bring out. Number one, we need to be bold and courageous. We need to care about the truth of the gospel and not care if it offends people. We don't need to be enslaved with the desire of being well-liked. No, that doesn't mean that we could be a jerk or unnecessarily harsh. No, we speak the truth with love. And even then, it would still be offensive to people. Carl Truman said the days when Christians could be both respected by their society and faithful to their beliefs is drawing rapidly to a close. So will we stand in the midst of social pressure? Oh, we'll be called racist, bigots, intolerant, whatever they could attach to phobic. Does that scare you? Certainly not fun. But will we stand and not be moved because the world will pass away? But his word is forever. Second point, we need to reach the loss, the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed. And yes, we need to care for their physical needs, but use that as an opportunity to meet their spiritual needs, which is far more important. Do not neglect gospel application and be bold to do so. Number three, faith comes first. In whatever ways in our own lives, it says, no, I'm not going to step out in faith until Jesus proves himself. We're also faced with the decision to either step out in faith in whatever way God may be calling you and to allow himself to show himself faithful to you, or we could wait until he proves himself in whatever way we deem is fit. Lastly, messianic expectation. So when Jesus came, there was a preconceived idea of what the, Messi what the Messiah was going to do. Political change, being freed from oppression. And he didn't do that for his own people. Are there a set of preconceived ideas that we have that Jesus ought to be doing in our own lives? That, hey, my life isn't working out the way I had hoped. What are some preconceived notions that prevent us from submitting under the will of God, knowing that he is after both our good and his glory, and those two things are not mutually exclusive? And I'll close with this. I'll read a portion of Psalm 107. There are those who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, and because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor, and they stumbled, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their misery. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. And let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are and your mission and what you've accomplished through Christ. And it's in his name we pray.